This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Ashok Gangadeen. Ashok has a doctorate in philosophy and has been professor of philosophy at Haverford College for over the past 45 years. His early work focused on logic, the science of thought, and ontology, the science of being. Throughout his career, he has been on a quest for the primal, integral logic at the heart of human reason, and to bring to the fore the deep dynamics of communication and dialogue between diverse worldviews. He's the author of Meditative Reason, Toward Universal Grammar, and Between Worlds, The Emergence of Global Reason. Both books seek to demonstrate that human reason is essentially global, holistic, integral, dialogic, and intercultural in scope and power. Ashok has also released a six-session audio learning program with Sounds True called Awakening the Global Mind, a program that introduces you to this revolutionary teaching for breaking out of the limiting patterns of what Ashok calls ego-mental thinking and connecting to the supreme universal consciousness that he identifies as Logos. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Ashok and I spoke about dilating or expanding the lens through which we see the world. We also talked about the importance of deep dialogue and being dialogical in our approach to understanding other people. We also talked about the Logosphere and what it might mean to find the missing grammar of Logos. Here's my conversation with Ashok Gangadeen. Ashok, you talk about awakening the global mind. And to begin with, help our listeners understand, what do you mean by the global mind? That's a wonderful question to open with. Uh, we, Of course, the word global has so many connotations in our contemporary culture in the second half of the 20th century, often referring to the globe itself and to global communications and corporations and money and, and forces across the planet. In philosophy and wisdom, it has a different meaning, going way back classically, that worldviews are realities, are shaped in different worldviews or grammars or, of reality, uh, whether in the Chinese mind or African modes of thought or feminist ways of thinking or scientific structures of thinking. These are different worldviews. 
And so global in the philosophical sense, in the sense of wisdom, has to do with can we find any truth across our worldviews? That would be global truth. And the global mind would be the possibility, and there's a lot of skepticism about this in contemporary culture. Is it possible for our intelligence, our rational capacity, our meditative intelligence to integrate diverse worldviews and find common ground across diverse cultures, worldviews, religions, scriptures, disciplines, and the liberal arts. And that would be awakening global literacy and the global mind. Okay, so I'm going to need you to help me here because, you know, when I imagine people from different worldviews, different countries, cultures, languages, backgrounds, I imagine us all sitting in a circle and not saying anything, Perhaps we could all tune to something that we could say we have in common or some shared heart space, if you will, something like that. But as soon as any one of us opens our mouths, aren't we in our own world sphere? I mean, how do we connect via language? Perfect question. That is right, exactly right. So sitting in, imagine a a wide circle, as wide as you wish, of diverse uh, humans in their different worldviews with their different lenses. Let's use the metaphor of the lens of the mind, so that if you're in certain, say, the Lakota mind, you would have a certain lens that you see your world and yourself and you know, your language, uh, or Judaic ways of thought, or Christian, or Muslim, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Confucian, uh, across the planet. Uh, you're right. To, to sit in a circle in silence is already to be in what I call the Logos, I use a Greek word, logos, which is a very high uh, status in all of European thought, going back to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. The logos is the Greek name for the fundamental field of rational light, of language, of speech, of thought. And so all our scientific words of logos, psychology, are using the logos word, or logic itself comes from the logos, trying to get that ultimate space from which our worlds uh, allegedly arise so when we are even in silence, we are never outside of the logosphere, the Sophia sphere. And uh, I use the word logos and Sophia together as logosophia, the name for the fundamental field that has been named di- differently, as you rightly point out. So the Chinese deep wisdom, Lao Tzu would call it the Tao, uh, the, the Yahweh of the Hebrew tradition, the Judaic tradition, Allah of the Muslim tradition, Om, Brahman. Shunyata, emptiness, basho in the Japanese, all naming this fundamental field. And my work has been to really show that the deepest pulse of this is to find the logosphere. I'm using the word logos now, not in a Greek tribal sense, but in a global context of the logos. So we're always in the logos, always in the Tao, always in the Yahweh, always in the, the Om. And to be in silence is already to be speaking in silence with our being together. So in in my Deep Dialogue Institute, being in deep dialogue silence is already to be speaking in silence, or Buddha's silence speaks volumes. So, But you're absolutely right. When anyone would start to speak, let's say in English, whatever her worldview might be, it looks as if your lens is already there. So the challenge you're rightly pointing to is, so how do we find a way to dialogue across borders of our lenses, which are profound, to really possibly meet in the Logos? That's a great question. Well, and I'm going to repeat it back to you in a certain sense, since it is a question. As soon as we use language, 
aren't we inherently challenged at understanding each other across these cultural boundaries, these boundaries of our lenses? How do we uh, overcome that? That's exactly right. And this is why in my work, Into the Global Mind, the Global Lens, or Global Literacy, imagine if this logos is indeed, as all of our geniuses have seen, there's a fundamental feel, it's the word. So in the, in the John begins his gospel, in the beginning is the logos, and it's the infinite word. In the beginning is the word, and Om is a word, and Tao is a word. So the, the counterpart to your question, Tammy, is that if this is true, that the original force of the universe is infinite and it's the infinite word, does, the, does it cash out into a language, a script, a code that is coding all of our diverse worldviews? That is the presumption and finding of our great mystical uh, spiritual traditions that this, the, the ultimate force, the infinite word, by whatever name, being infinite, must be the common funding source for all possible language forms and worldviews and lenses and perspectives and narratives. And that is just such a profound intuition that has been ever-present in perennial wisdom for us. So your question then becomes, and this is what I've been dealing with in my institute, the Global Dialogue Institute, that presumed to have deep dialogue encounters across worldviews, can a Christian really share common ground with a Jew? Can a Muslim have common ground with a Christian as children of Abraham, uh, as these traditions are called, for example, can a Christian have a real conversation of meeting of minds with a Buddhist or someone in the yoga tradition? That is the challenge. You're right. And so the first way to, res to, to respect this is to honor the point you're making, which is that, look, I am here with my lens at this round table. I'm speaking my truth from my point of view. You're speaking from your point of view. And the presumption is, are we ever meeting? Can we ever communicate or find union or common discourse across those worldviews. And so my work has been to show how it is possible to dilate our own language form to expand it into the logos sphere. So all of, say, everyday English, is it possible that I can say, this is mountain, as the Zen master would say. When I say in my naive, everyday, uncritical English, this is mountain, or this is pen, or I am here, and the Zen master would point out, well, when you speak the Zen script, you realize that that uh, narrow tribal identity is not the deepest meaning of your word. So you, when you say mountain, mountain is not mountain. That's the second stage of the therapy. And having gone through the deconstruction of that naive identity of your sentence or words, the Zen master would now open up the new, the logosphere, the Zen sphere, the Zenglish, deeper English, to say, behold the mountain. Mountain is mountain. Or Blake would say the grain of sand is infinite, infinity in a grain of sand, eternity in an hour. What these teachers are trying to do is to open up our words and resurrect them to their source so that we realize our language is much deeper than we realized. So dilating the global lens is attempting to say, oh my God, this simple pen that I'm holding, which I can use in everyday English, say, bring me the pen, or the pen is blue, or the pen is for writing, or it's plastic, I'll throw it away. If I found this pen is picked up on Mars, Suddenly, I have a changed perspective. Says, wow, a pen on Mars. This is headline news for all history. This means that culture, writing, wisdom is from another, from another extraterrestrial source. Uh, everything around us has that potential to be dilated into the Zen space or the Buddha space or 
the, the Kabbalah space. When we enter the Kabbalah, we are getting the deeper, decoded words from our ordinary language. Now, you're using an interesting term, Ashok, dilating our lens. What does that mean? How do I do that in everyday speech, dilate my lens? Well, in a way, think of Descartes' uh, lab experiment on this. Great question again. Uh, when he saw and he was saying, is there anything I know for certain in his meditations? And it's all very classic. He says, I can, I can doubt everything in my world. I'm the screen of my awareness where I use my everyday language. And he says, I could be dreaming. And it could be all frivolous and, and fantasy. And he says, how about mathematics? He thought, okay, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Even that, now I can't doubt. But then he says, what if there's a demon deceiving my mind and making it look as if it's true? Even logic and mathematics could be false. And then he said, I'm going to step back from these stories that I have. Here's a dilation, the stepping back allegedly, and allow myself to step out of the box and see if there's anything I can discover. And that's when he hit the I am. When he did that, if we just realize he stepped out of the box, which could be doubted, the screen, so to speak, where we put our everyday speech, and he said, I am, he hit a deeper, dilated I am. And he realized that. He realized that his utterance was his being. It wasn't describing something or talking about it anymore. He was it. And that is a moment of dilation where all of, all of yoga, for example, where the, the dialogue of Krishna with Arjuna, where Arjuna breaks down on the battlefield in his life, in a war with his family, and he drops his weapons to Krishna, this is impossible, I'm damned, either way, help me. And Krishna is the own voice, the, 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 uh, the Logos voice. Uh, and, of course, your point is beautifully taken because Arjuna doesn't have a clue how to truly listen to Krishna's voice from the highest sphere. So the early part of the Gita is trying to show him he has to dilate his consciousness to understand the Om script and therefore get into his higher Atman, the higher self. So all of these great teachers, Buddha's awakening, exactly has to do with the process of stepping back from your ordinary patterns and habits of mind and linguistic prophecies and allow yourself to open and flow into the zone where these words expand into their source. And now it's a new reality. It's a holistic language. I found this journey so vital across our wisdom traditions that uh, I, in my journey of awakening the global mind, found it necessary to, to introduce a script, a marker, to see when we're in the ego language utterances and when we dilate into the holistic, integral, dialogic eye-thou space. I use double parentheses for that and single markers to say to mark almost like quotation marks for, for our level of, of, of dimension of speech. So when we're in the ego, monistic, monological mind, I use single brackets. And when we cross into this dilated space of deep dialogue, the I-thou space that Descartes stepped into and the yoga is about and Buddha's awakening and the Zen moment and the Christ consciousness and the Quaker wisdom, they're all trying to capture the double bracket logos. And that's a dilated script, a dilated mind and lens. So just digging in still yet a little bit further into this word, dilating, is that adding water, like dilution? Is that what you mean? So we're adding space or we're expanding? It is not diluting. On the contrary, it gets more concentrated, uh, ironically. So the dilation really is a metaphor for expanding, for opening up. So when we are in our naive, everyday cultural language, whatever it is, which tends to be more f focused on the law of identity, that every word has its fixed meaning, 
and everything has its own space. And when I say I, I'm picking out me as a separate atomic uh, being that stands on my own. Those identity words, that level of evolution of language based upon the law of naive identity, uh, artificially chops our words into separate places. And every word, even the fundamental ones like space and time and cause and substance and color and figure and texture and motion, they all have their own identity stamp. And certainly me, I, I am, who am I? Well, I have my own story and my own identity. Well, those words, that kind of language has artificially fixed, cut-off meanings. And when the word expands, if I can say I am in the way Descartes is, or that the yogi who's awakened in his meditative, her meditative practice and says I am, which is the whole point of the yoga, is to, to see, it's not that you're diluted, it is that you're dilated and expanded into the uh, awakened consciousness. Uh, Socrates would say we have to leave the cave and, and, and enter the Logos light, which is a journey of philosophy and wisdom. So what happens to our mind and our lens and our script and literacy if and when we do that? Well, I use the word dilation uh, as one metaphor for that. So imagine Blake saying that if we can dilate and look at a grain of sand from that point of view or anything, you would see it in its deep revealed essence. The grain of sand has infinity in it. There's infinity in the grain of sand, in the rose, in, the, in every person. Uh, the Quaker says there's that of the infinite in every person. Well, if we could open that up and recognize that in each other, which is the dialogic way of being, the other person becomes more profoundly sacred and revealed rather than diluted. So that really is the spirit of when you get into the logosphere, where ostensibly, as that, using that word, all of our great traditions think that's the fundamental field. That's where everything is flowing, in their infinite interconnectivity, and that's where it's magnificent and sacred, and that's the source of our human rights. Now, it seems like some language structures would lend themselves to easier dilation, if you will, and that perhaps English isn't the easiest language because of the subject verb construction in English. I know you've done so much work cross-culturally and in the field of linguistics. So what do we know? Which languages are the closest, if you will, to this global language of literacy? That's a wonderful question, Tammy. Uh, the, and we know that, for example, in certain languages, in their grammars, there is no verb uh, in the Chinese characters, for example, which is a whole different uh, way of representation. Uh, you don't have the subject is predicate uh, in, in the English, uh, Greek, uh, European languages, for example. You often have subject S is P, Socrates is wise, and you have the is joining the subject uh, noun phrase and the verb phrase. And of course, Noam Chomsky, one of our geniuses, who was seeking to get the deep grammar, the, he called it the deep structure of all human languages, uh, thought that logic will help him get into that uh, fundamental structure that is the generative semantics and syntax for all language and so forth. But how, how, however diverse our natural human cultural languages are, and they are profoundly diverse, it's hard to say that one is more conducive to the Logos script than others because the bottom diagnosis is that as long as you're objectifying the content of your speech, as long as your language is talking about X, Y, and Z, whatever its font, it is in the trap of objectification. 
you're separating the thinker from the content of thought in all of these languages, and our diverse languages don't naturally lend themselves to being in the Om zone, or the Christ space, or the Kabbalah space, or the Buddha space. That takes a shift, a dimensional shift in our scripting. As Descartes said, I am, when he said I am, he realized he crossed out of the box where he was talking about the world and mathematics to the unified field where he was scripting, he was the script, and he did not know how to handle that. When Jesus got into this, for example, he spoke in a weird way. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And the, the, the listeners who were speaking the ego-based, single-bracket language couldn't get it because it was a different level of language where the scripture is the script. So that becomes the divide between uh, can you cross into the holistic holosphere in which you are swimming in language and you are language and you are scripting, we be scripting, and you can't separate the scripture from what is scripted. So that becomes the key to seeing whether you've crossed the dimension into the local script or whether you're objectifying it and therefore reducing it and cutting it off using the law of identity unconsciously to put it on the screen of awareness. So in a very grounded way, I want to talk about this. Here you've done all of this work with cross-cultural dialogue and working with different religious leaders and spiritual leaders from different traditions. What is the best way to approach dialogue in this kind of form that will allow us to meet in, I, I like the ohm zone of all the words that you've used, to meet in the ohm zone. What would you say are sort of the do's and don'ts, if you will, of dialogue to meet in the ohm zone? Wonderful question again, Tammy. The, uh, the, 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 what, the greatest challenge I have found, and I'm listening to our great teachers across the ages, I and mean, if you think of Buber, who's in his uh, I and Tao, uh, beautiful book, is saying there are two ways uh, to, 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 to speak and think, and one is I-it, the I-it space, that's a single bracket, and I-thou, which is crossing into the dialogue space. When you're in I-thou and you step back from your fixed lens, putting it on the other, something happens profoundly if you dilate your lens. You open, say you stand in front of a Van Gogh painting, and you can look at it from an egoic, monocentric view where you look at it as an object. Well, it's, a, it's in the museum, it's on the wall, it's a, worth $3 million, and you want to write about it, uh, but then if you can be in the zone with it, in the own zone with it, and open your heart and mind and just be with it, in the I-thou sphere, where, the, where it's no longer objectified in the box, but now meeting you and you're meeting it in a direct encounter, that's the I-thou space. So imagine for religious dialogue, interfaith dialogue, and peacemaking across borders, all of these uh, different forms, where we hit the boundaries of our single-bracket uh, monocentric uh, language, the greatest challenge, when I met with religious leaders in New York City, for example, the Partnership of Faith, and they asked me to please come and help them see if they can get to a deeper dialogue uh, in their faith. Each of these great uh, religious leaders of their communities have been meeting for several years, and they would come and bring their lens and speak and witness to their voice and their tradition and their perspective. But then if you do that, if I come as a Christian and listen to a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, from my lens, knowing that Jesus is the only truth and you others are outside of that, dialogue hits monologue. Monologue is when you privilege your own lens and unwilling to dilate and step back and cut slack and allow 
a dialogos. The word dialogue means through the logos. That's where we meet. So, for example, if you have a pro-choice and a pro-life, and each is in a different world, speaking a different language, and they're willing to die for it, or you have Big Bang or Genesis, what's the truth about the origin of the cosmos? Is the Bible right? Is it Genesis? Or is it Big Bang? Well, if you stand in the single bracket box and you duke it out, you're not going to get anywhere in terms of dialogue. You'll have monologue. You'll keep repeating your own narrative. So the key to dialogue uh, with, say, religious leaders is to recognize that what they value most, which is the fundamental word, the primal name, that it must be infinite. This is a very powerful point, because when you realize that Brahman is infinite, Om is infinite, Tao is infinite, Yahweh is infinite, Christ is infinite, and if that's so, then is it different infinites? Well, that immediately collapses as nonsense. You can only have one infinite. And we know that because, uh, self-evident, because if you had two infinites, it wouldn't be infinite. It would be limited by the other. So if it's one infinite, is it unified? Yes. How? Infinitely unified. What does that mean? It means all of our narratives must come out of that source. If that's so, if, let's call it the Logos, just to take one of the names, we could take any of them, then can we meet in that field? As Rumi says, there is a field. It's often quoted Rumi. There's a field beyond words. I'll meet you there. What he's calling out in the Sufi tradition is that this field is so profound and immediate and therefore present, ever-present, that we're already in it. We're never outside of it. You can't step away from it. And therefore it surrounds us in and out. And it's at hand, and in, within, and, and, and without. And so the key to dialogue, and this is where religious leaders, you would, one would think, would be most uh, you know, inclined to say, yes, I, I do believe in the infinite. That's my whole point. And even the Buddha, the Shunyata, the emptiness of Buddha's field, the, 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 the Buddha Dharma, that too, even though it's not God, it is the field where everything meets and interconnects. So you would think that interfaith dialogue would be a very fertile space to dilate that back from privileging your land and allow us to meet in the field of Logos, or the common ground of our faith. That's, that's a, a great challenge. I mean, you're saying something very interesting, and I want to make sure that I'm following you here. What you're saying is that you believe that all of these different representatives from different traditions would agree that at the basis of their faith is something that could be called something infinite. That's the leap, because once we get to infinity, then we're all in this same infinite field. Does everybody, is, does everybody make this leap to infinity? Well, it's not a leap. It, 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 is, a, it, it is a premise. Uh, it's a given, because uh, no one would say that Yahweh is not infinite, or Om is not infinite, or Tao is not infinite. In fact, that's why the opening of the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that is named in the ordinary script is not the Tao. That's the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching. And Patanjali in the yoga is that yoga is a quieting of the ego mind, the ego script so that the Om can open up, uh, so that uh, the way you word it, which is intriguing, uh, Tammy, it's that one would think that Allah is clearly infinite. No one would say Allah is not. So that, that a spiritual uh, master leader, him or her, uh, would ha- potentially have fertile common ground in realizing there is something first, it must be infinite, and this infinite must be unifying, because you can't divide it and break it or, or multiply it. And once you see that, as you pointed out, then it's from that deep givenness of the infinite 
that, that profound global axioms begin to flow across borders. So when Buddha, for example, is trying to reveal that script in the Buddha field, the Shinyatsa, where everything is co- co- uh, originating, and he sees that's the ethics, that's the Buddha Dharma, that's the law of compassion where everything arises. Or when Jesus has a version of that in his font, that when I was in prison, you visited me, and when I was hungry, you fed me. And his disciples didn't understand that. And he said, when you tended to the least of mine, you tended to me. Why? Because the Christ space is the I thou, and the other is already encoded within us. In each of us, there, is, there are no separate atoms. That's the greatest mythology of the ego-based monocentric script. Using identity, it atomizes. An atom in philosophy is a separate alleged unit of independent, self-sustaining existence. So when you make yourself an entity or a being, you think it's a high status. But, but, but for a spiritual leader see, that's the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve in eating the fruit of single-bracket knowledge, so to speak, fell from grace, from connectivity, from the zone. And the condition of sin is a sin script. And in Eastern thought, it's called samsara, the cycle of beginningless and endless suffering cut off from nirvana. And so the journey of spirituality is to, uh, produce, to uh, awaken the script, the missing script that we got cut off from. And so, yes, that, that is really uh, the, the pathway into that uh, awakened common script. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Ashok, I know you've written a book called Meditative Reason. And, you know, this is such an intriguing title to me. Often uh, when I talk to people who are meditators, they're not particularly interested in rationality or reason. And, what you know, whatever insights, it's nothing to do that the thinking mind or the reasoning mind has generated. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by meditative reason? That's a great question. Yes, uh, that was actually my first major book. Uh, And uh, you you may know that I was trained in logic at Brandeis University. Uh, And I went into logic, even though as a boy walking the streets of New York, I I just had a a vision hit me in the streets uh, that uh, my hair was standing up. And I was only about 13 or 14. And the next day I started writing, knowing nothing about philosophy. Seek the light, universal light. Walk in the universal light. I started writing this down. I didn't know what it meant. And years later, I went on to, uh, to, to, to psychology and engineering first, and then psychology and then philosophy. And I realized my, my psychology professor said, you don't belong here. You should be in philosophy. When I was asking about the psyche and the soul, he said, you, these are not questions that, that empirical scientists uh, ask. So I went to philosophy. And when I got there to philosophy, cutting my classes at City College of New York, I realized that, you know, that if I'm going to be a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, philosophia means lover of Sophia, if I'm going to be a philosopher, I'm going to have to learn analytic philosophy because that dominated the whole scene in America. 
and analytic philosophy meant logic. So I, I became a logician in my early years, even though I was seeking this universal light, which turned out to be the Logos, and the Logos of here. Uh, that, that got clearer down the road. But as an early logician, the logic is a science of reason, the laws of thought and logic. And that's where I was trained, and I saw that modern mathematical logic uh, was a whole breakthrough that revolutionized logic, and that now dominated the scene of philosophy, mathematical logic, and rejected Aristotle's logic, uh, syllogistic logic that shaped European consciousness for 2,000 years. That was being dumped and rejected as Ptolemaic, old school. And I, my, 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 uh, my, my mentor at Brandeis, for whom I was his assistant, a genius, uh, Professor Fred Summers, who was just discovering a missing calculus in Aristotle's logic to revolutionize the classical logic. And I got caught between the two logics, mathematical new logic and the classical uh, logic coming from Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And I realized, my God, logic is polarized. There's two alternative ways of reason, and reason must be broken. And that's why Socrates drank headlock, because he was trying to show his colleagues that reason is coherent. There is a logos. There is a coherent, unified logic. So I was struck from the start of my career to discover a polarity in the heart of logic and reason. And it was three years later, after being at Haverford, I came in 68, I went on my first leave, and I went to India for the first time to leave philosophy and do music and Sanskrit and just to saturate myself in sitar and tabla and take a break. Uh, and I was lecturing at the University of Pune and on my logic uh, findings, and they were fascinated with that. But then I discovered the Bhagavad Gita, and that shook me up, meditative intelligence. And that, I never really understood that. And then I studied Buddha, and I saw Buddha's Great Awakening. And they, I saw, were trying to solve the polarity problem of, of single-bracket thought. So I began to see meditative intelligence. Why was I not educated in meditative intelligence in my long training? And so I came back from India and said to my colleagues at Haverford, folks, I want to start teaching Hindu thought and Buddhist thought as part of my research in logic. And they were very skeptical and suspicious, but they allowed it, and I started doing that. And then 25 years later, I wrote Meditative Reason because I began to see that single-bracket reason is polarized always, and it's irreconcilable. And so the logical polarity, I found, was inevitable, just like alternative geometries. And so how do you solve the broken structure of reason? It's got to be coherent. And that took me over decades into the Logos. And that's where I began to find the missing grammar of Logos. So I wrote Meditative Reason, which is like a, that's almost like a paradox to say that, because you think meditation is this spooky thing that's beyond reason, and reasoning is a simple, uh, objectified, narrow-minded logic in the box, and that's certainly not spirituality. So to combine those two words in my title was a kind of breakthrough into a deeper dimension of human reason. Now, when you say you found the missing grammar of logos, can you tell me what you mean by that? Thank you, yes. Uh, By that I began to see as a logician. Logicians are keen on finding the grammar of thought. And it's almost like a biologist finding the DNA structure. If you could find and decode the structure and laws of consciousness, which is what logic is after, the laws of thought, the grammar of thought. So the word grammar in philosophy and logic has a a profound meaning, and not just only linguistic, uh, where it's important too, but if you can get the, the code that is structuring meaningful thought, where we make meaningful conscious thoughts, where reason, human reason, originates. If you can get the grammar of reason, that would be an ultimate human breakthrough. So 
So logicians have been on that, and when the modern logicians thought they found the mathematical code, they thought they finally decoded the missing grammar of, of reason, logic. They found the missing logic. But then what I found was, no, logic is polarized because my mentor found an alternative logic to the mathematical logic, and so we still haven't found the missing code. But when, when I began to discover the technology of meditative intelligence, whether it's a yoga a technology that Krishna is teaching Arjuna, he's teaching him how to enter the Om space, the Om zone. And Buddha is attempting to tell humanity in his Four Noble Truths that humans are suffering in the box. And it has a cause. It's attachment to their mind-operating identity structure, the, the single-bracket script. And the third noble truth is we have a choice. We don't have to use that mind-operating process. And the fourth noble truth is we can rehabilitate our intelligence and consciousness through mindful living into the eightfold paths of all aspects, 24-7 of culture, to the Buddha script. So what I began to see is that in India, they're fighting out between the Hindu grammar and the Buddhist grammar, and I'm saying, why could that be? How can you have a battle? Now that you're tapping the meditative intelligence and source, how can you have Buddhists and Hindus fighting over the ultimate grammar? And then I studied Zen and saw that Nishida, the great 20th century genius founder of Kyoto School, was trying to get the logic of Zen, the logic of the empty field. And he was saying his colleagues were not understanding him. And I began working on this for years and began to see there's got to be a way to get the common ground of this deep space. And that's where I began to see through the geniuses. And then I would go back to Descartes now and say, wow, Descartes, we were missing when he went into the zone, into I am. He was tapping the logosphere. And everything he said after that was not in the box anymore. And so I began to listen to Jesus. I began to listen to, to the story of Abraham. When Yahweh calls out to Israel, love me with all you got, folks. Put me first. And Abraham has to struggle with, do I give up my Isaac? Which is to say his metaphor for his agenda and his identity and everything that he valued. Do I put God above this? Uh, you know, everything began to open up in a new light for me once I began to, to enter into this, what is this deep code of the Logos? Is there a common Logos that we can bring the Yoga and the Buddha and the Christ and the Abrahamic tradition and the Allah and see Sufi wisdom and Quaker wisdom and feminist wisdom, scientific wisdom, Einstein, the unified field, the quest for the, the decoding nature and the language of nature. All of this began to come together in the double bracket uh, technology that was finally becoming clear to me. So that's really what I mean by tapping the missing grammar of Logos. Now, let me just try this on you. What if someone says, you know, from my meditative experience, I know what it means to rest in being or rest in stillness, or you could use a word like the ohm zone, that's fine. And there isn't any thinking going on. There's no reasoning, there's no logic or rationality. There's just a being. And that's where we meet. Why all this talk about reason and logic? I don't get that. That's a great question. And this has, you're, you're in great company with all the mystics, for example, who would give the script away and, 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 and realize that if I talk about it, this is your opening question, if I talk about it, I'm in my meditative stillness. It's beautiful. It's nirvanic. It's blissful, and it's silent, and words are going to muck it up. 
and and reasoning and logic is going to just interfere with the stillness and the bliss that I'm feeling. And the Buddha knew that. The Buddha was silent when the students, the disciples were saying, uh, asking metaphysical questions of him. Is there a beginning of time? And does the Buddha exist after death? And Buddha sits still in silence. That was his mode of speech. He spoke volumes in his silence because he was saying in his demonstration, his body language, in his stillness, to the other listeners, he or she could listen, that the Buddha is not speaking not because the Buddha is dumbfounded or silenced and shut down, but brilliantly speaking silence, which is an invitation to silence the ego reason and logic and thought, the ego script. But then your beautiful point, Tammy, is that why don't we just remain in silence? Can I speak? Can I carry water? Can I chop wood? Can I, can I say I love you in that stillness? Is there a way to speak? Does it, is there a script? Or is the mystic right that speech will always be dualistic and in the box and deepest truth is beyond words and therefore must be honored in silence? That's a huge tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. But on the other hand, the, the geniuses also saw that in the beginning is script. The beginning is word, word power. And do you mean that it is beyond speech and writing and, and verbalization? The answer is no. We need to go deeper to uncover the language of Logos. It's beautiful script. And it doesn't mean you have to speak verbally in everyday terms. You can hand a flower to a friend. You could look in her eyes and bow. You can use body language. You can make music. My son is a musician, for example, and he says, Powerful music coming out of his face. Our great musical geniuses tap the musicality of this Akashic field. Uh, so the question you're beautifully asking, and it needs to be asked, is, is the ultimate truth encountered in stillness and silence beyond reason? Or could it be that deep reason, logos as pure reason, flows in coherence and connectivity? And in that stillness, when I see myself in the other, when I see myself in nature, when I see myself in that tree or that flowing water, that flow in the zone, when I'm zoning, that's pure speech and language unfolding. The fabric of the field is linguistic in this, in this deep way. And speech, verbal human speech, is just one download from it. I hope that makes sense. I'll ask a further question and see if it helps add a little more fullness to your answer, which is I know you talk about something that you call a convergence between faith and reason. And I want to see if I can understand better what you mean by that. That's a great question. Of course, that was a classical divide in the uh, early modern period with writers like Locke and Barclay and Hume and Descartes in the European tradition, the battle between faith versus reason. And Descartes faced that in his meditations. He was treading on difficult, dangerous territory when he, in his meditations he was alleging to bring sure that reason can take us in, to, to infinite being and the divine because the church and the authorities, uh, you know, the realm of faith, the domain of faith dominated and, and ruled. And if you trespassed on scripture or, or, or desecrated uh, biblical tradition uh, with human reason, I mean, it was dangerous. But philosophers began to see that rationality arises in faith. In other words, there's faith in the single bracket itself. You can believe in some proposition or sentence. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I believe that God exists. 
I believe that God is good. I believe that so-and-so. So our beliefs in the single bracket are content in the box. And I can have faith in, I believe that it's raining now, right? And I can have single bracket faith. But the geniuses also knew that there's a deeper faith, which is so profound, when you're in that stillness that you beautifully articulated, Tammy, that is pure faith, that immediate, non-dual, holistic, integral knowing, the I-thou space, where you know the full presence that surrounds you. That is an experiential communion and intimacy of deep faith. That's double-breasted faith. But now reason is precisely tapping the logos. So when you're in the deep stillness of your being and, 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 and articulate in that and experiencing the profound interconnectivity within you and around you in, 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 with other humans and with the ecology and interconnectivity, that's the fabric of reason. Reason is a calculus of interconnectivity. It's the Buddha field, the Christ field, the Yahweh field. So reason, in its mature sense, is a field of coherence, integral connectivity, and when we experience that, we are in the deepest faith meeting the deepest reason. And uh, Kant, for example, saw that we can't find ethics in the box, we can't talk about it as a sentence in the box. You've got to be in the, the noumenal self, and that is rational faith. So rational faith is a knowing that your higher self is with you, and yet you are that higher self, even though you can't think about it and can't put it in the box that's where our honor code and ethics comes from, from that deep inner faith uh, in pure reason. So that's where I would find the link between deep faith and deep reason. It's helpful. Now, Ashok, I want to make sure that our listeners are receiving takeaways, if you will, from this conversation that are really practical. I mean, we live in a time where we know that the world faces so many challenges because we don't understand each other across borders and boundaries, where we live with terrorism and racism and prejudice of all kinds. How do we take these philosophical ideas that you're describing and how do they hit the ground so that we make real changes in the world and generate real results? Beautiful question, and it's right on. That's really been my passion for years. Uh, that's why I founded the Global Dialogue Institute, precisely to bring the art and technology of deep dialogue into the culture, not only in a classroom, but with our world leaders and with our folks out in the civic space for democracy, let's say, because our democratic space is deeply compromised and uh, we're not really communicating across our ideologies and perspectives and interest groups and so forth, and, uh, and, the, and the we, the people, the essence of democracy, just to pick out one aspect of, of a great question you ask, uh, democracy, we, the people, e pluribus unum, as uh, the founding fathers and mothers use that motto, out of the many, there is one, e pluribus unum. The unum is a double bracket unity, not a single bracket unity. And this is huge for the takeaway for people, because if there's any uh, distilled point that you might take away from our conversation, you've led it beautifully, Tammy, it's that, am I paying attention to the script that I'm living? Do I realize that when I'm talking about things, as beautiful and great as it is, I could talk about anything and everything, 
that our great teachers for centuries have been calling us to step back a bit and watch what mind operating process are we using because if you're talking about it, if you're living the life of identity, if you've made yourself an object, there's a profound scriptural violence. It has a virus in it. That's the great message of all the teachers who are trying to help us to upscript, not download. And really it comes down to the most immediate things. That, am I really integral within my inner life? Here I am a practicing Jew or Christian, but I'm also a scientist, and I'm a civic American, and I'm practicing yoga and chanting Om, and I'm using Feng Shui to redesign my life. I'm across all of these borders. Are there many me's in every of those different worlds, or am I one human being? Am I one? Is there inner dialogue within me? So that is, am I raising my children? Am I just raising them uncritically in the cultural boxes that we have, and unwittingly, without knowing it, because I haven't paid attention to my lens and my script, scripting my kids into boxes that they have to somehow liberate themselves from later, if they're lucky, with a, with deep therapy and spiritual awakening and meditative uh, therapies to to bring themselves into their true self and higher self. So it affects every aspect of our lives 24-7. In the workplace, am I truly stepping back and listening to the other? Is the man listening to the woman? Are we really hearing the hearts of the gay people, for example, and not putting our lens on them? Are we really humanizing our space and our culture? Are we opening up our democracy for we the people to be a we? Where we, picking up on your earlier question, if I can step out of my artificial story in the box about myself and meet the other person in the field of Rumi, the field of Om, in that open space, if I dare to have the courage to do that and open myself to the other and listen and speak from that space, that would be the space of ethics. That's the awakened space. That's where we the people will meet in the space of deep dialogue. So it affects every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our cultures, deep in our education. I have to ask as a teacher, uh, 45 years teaching at Haverford, founded by the Quakers, which is about this. The Quakers understood there's that of God in every man and woman. And therefore we have to stand open for liberal arts to really blossom and never put our lens on the other person. That ethos, uh, to have a classroom, a laboratory where students brilliant, beautiful young minds coming in, but they've been so steeped in single-bracket education, in the boxes, in the different fields, they're all broken apart. How do I open a laboratory space for them to open up and experience this deep dialogue space and taste this own script, this, this script of logos, this deeper logic? It really is necessary all through every aspect of our lives. And I hope this is helping you to get a sense of the takeaway. It is. I'm going to just make it one step more personal, which is to know, Ashok, in your own life, are there times when you catch yourself in what you're calling here ego-mentalism? And how do you observe that in yourself? How do you catch yourself? And what's the shift that happens? Beautiful. I mean, my my journey as a philosopher then, realizing that the the double-bracket script, whatever name you use, the logosphere, the Sophia sphere has to be lived and embodied. You can't talk about it. You've got to be it. You've got to walk the talk and talk the walk in that script. And my life journey has been a very painful and challenging uh, tr- finding the ways have been deeply, pre-consciously programmed in the lens that's implanted in my mind that I participated in, uh, uh, seeking to, to practice 
am I walking the talk? But the Zen master would say, when you chop wood, chop wood. When you carry water, carry water. In other words, the heart of wisdom is be here now. Be in presence. Be open. Be in deep dialogue. And what I found in my journey, Sammy, and great question, is was I, I have two generations of, of children. In my first marriage, I have two daughters. One is 53, uh, and she's an attorney. And the other one is a yoga teacher. She's 49. My second marriage, Devin, Nathan, and Ashley, uh, I, I was beginning to see the double bracket culture and sought to raise my second generation in this articulate space of living and breathing the zone, so to speak. So I've had almost like a laboratory comparison in my own life. And I began to see that uh, in many ways I, I, I encoded that objectification of myself. There were things in me, mind and body. I was having a mind-body split. And I, and I realized that the double bracket me would be a mind-body and not a mind versus a body. So I had to practice as an athlete in all of my athletic activities. Can I run in the zone? I'm a runner. Can I really let myself be the running? And so I began to see in every respect nature around me. I was objectified. Other people, I was objectified. Co-workers, uh, my lover was, was, was objectified. My sexual life was, is, is she a sex object or is she a, a sacred partner? My own body, am I treating my body as a sacred temple or is it objectified in the box? And so, yes, uh, my life journey has been a deep, ongoing self-revision, painful at times, of discovering that I had been lodged in the single bracket objectifying calculus and technology, and that to really live the truth and be it, it was a lifelong uh, self-revision and watchfulness and education and learning. And that's the path that, that I find myself on. Okay, Ashok, one final question. I'd love to know, as a philosopher and inquirer and deep thinker, what's the question you're really asking and chewing on now? Beautiful. I have been deeply uh, you know, invested in seeking to perform a book. I call it a movie drama script. It's called Awakening Global Enlightenment or Maturation as a Species. And I began to see, after working with many different leaders, the evolutionary leaders, for example, brilliant minds, authors, best-selling authors, who form a group to try and bring a new consciousness to the planet, uh, beautiful people, the World Commission on Global Consciousness, with the Dalai Lama, Desmond, Desmond Tutu, Jane Goodall, many others, uh, the World Wisdom Council, many different uh, brilliant people. What I begin to see is that the most fundamental issue about our evolutionary maturation is moving from the ego-based monocentric script in the box, realizing that that has deep implications for generating our crises on the planet and our violence to one another and to ourselves, and that the most profound evolutionary script that our geniuses have been calling us to thousands of years is to upscript into the zone, and that that's a literacy, and we need to get that out. And, and I think that everyday people, as rational beings, as humans are rational beings, we have the capacity for this global enlightenment. It's not just for some esoteric small elite group. We, the people, have a right to be awakened and to step out of the boxes into this deep rationality and literacy and script for our culture. And we must do that with great urgency if we're going to be sustainable and to thrive together as one human family across our borders. So my main 
uh, occupation, preoccupation in. How would I write, uh, let's say, a movie script? I'm seeing it as a movie because it's so powerful. And not to have, I'm not an academic. I don't want to write a treatise on philosophy. I want to write a script that people will read and through the reading will realize that the script is transforming and dilating as we go through it so that by scripting the, the narrative of this journey into the ultimate mystery of decoding and getting the Logos code as we've never had before is to see that our, our well-being and flourishing and sustainability turns on this. So that's really my clear focus and priority at this time in my life. I've been speaking with Ashok Gangadeen. With Sounds True, Ashok has created a six-session audio learning program called Awakening the Global Mind, New Philosophy for Healing Ourselves and Our World. Ashok, thank you so much for the work you're doing, and I'm so happy to know that there you are at Haverford working with students while you're working on all of these other projects simultaneously. Uh, You're still right there in the field working with young people. It's beautiful. Well, thank you, Tammy, so much. You you led this conversation beautifully. Beautiful questions. It's a pleasure to dance with you. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.